Father God, today we love and honor you. You are our God, and we submit our loyalty and adoration to you. Father, please let your ears always be attentive to our prayers. Holy Spirit, our sustainer, continue to teach us to love you, to love Jesus, our brother, and to love our Father God. Please touch the hearts of those who do not, who do not adore the Lord. Help them to love him with all their hearts, souls, and strength. Forgiving Father, forgive us for sins of pride, rebellion, disobedience, selfishness, hatred, and idolatry. Forgive us for half-hearted worship. Forgive us for disrespecting your name and <clears throat> treating you irreverently. We thank you not only for your countless blessings, but also for the challenges that draw us near to you. Thank you for the hard moments when you give us the strength to wait out the storms of life. Jesus, you are so good. Whenever storms come into our lives, you're our rock and our shelter. Thank you for your provision that fills us, your light that surrounds us, and your love that never fails. We thank you for your church and the privilege of meeting with you today. Help us to learn and remember as we study your word today. As you taught us through the Sermon on the Mount, please help us to narrow all our interest until our attitude of mind and heart and body is concentration on Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rich. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to see each and every one of you this morning. I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it's my honor to bring God's Word to you as well. We're going to be continuing in our sermon series on 2 Peter. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 today, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. This, uh, this is the next to last sermon in 2 Peter, uh, so for those of you who like big words, this is the penultimate sermon in this series. All right, read along with me in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be reading the first 13 verses. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen predictions, it seems that the people just can't help themselves. They, they have to nail down a specific time when Jesus is going to return. And despite everyone being wrong up to this point, despite the fact that Jesus himself said that no man knows the day or the hour, people continue to believe in somebody who comes up with a new chronological method for determining when Jesus is going to return. Now, all of these false prophecies can wear on true believers. They can disillusion us and cause us to even doubt the return of Christ. We can start thinking, well, people have been saying that ever since I was a kid. People were saying that when my grandfather was a kid. Maybe this isn't going to happen after all. But the Spirit of God is telling us this morning that we can put aside that doubt. Certain, we can be certain that Jesus is indeed going to return. Our King, our Lord, will return to this earth no matter how many people falsely predict his return, no matter how many people openly deny his return, he will come back and he will finish the work that he began. So this morning I want to look more closely at what Peter said about the second coming or the second arrival of Jesus. That's really what this whole passage is all about. So the first thing I want you to notice is that he says that ungodly people deny the return of Jesus. Ungodly people deny the return of Jesus. Now, this section actually begins with a purpose statement for the whole book. Peter says that this is the second letter he's written to these people, and that both are intended to be reminders. So the purpose of 2 Peter is to be a reminder. He wants to remind believers, as he said uh, earlier in chapter 1, he wants to remind believers of truths that they know. And the reason he's reminding them is because he wants to protect them from false teaching that is rising up, and he wants to encourage them in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. Now, I do want to make an editorial correction, and uh, unlike the newspaper, I will not bury it in the uh, classified ads. Last week, you may recall that I mentioned that uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, because Peter said that there will be false teachers among you in the future tense, that that indicated that false teaching had not yet arisen within these churches. Well, as it turns out, I was absolutely wrong about that, so shh, just put that aside. It is a good lesson, though, to... to uh, to judge what I say according to Scripture. And, and here's why I say I was wrong about that, because uh, chapter 3 is very clearly aimed at specific false teachings and specific false attitudes that uh, Peter's trying to correct by the truth of God. So therefore, we can really uh, infer from that that indeed false teaching had already arisen. There was this false teaching going around. There, was, there were these uh, sinful attitudes that were going around that Peter needed to correct. So uh, in this passage, Peter's going to refute these uh, ungodly people, but uh, first he goes back to reinforcing the importance of paying attention to God's word. So first he says, remember, I want you guys, I'm, I'm writing this to remind you, and the first thing he wants to, re to remind us of is to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The predictions of the holy prophets refers to Old Testament scripture and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles refers to apostolic teaching, which of course 
would be the source of Scripture, New Testament Scripture. So ultimately what the Spirit of God is saying is, I want you to remember once again to pay attention, to give attention to God's Word. Give attention to the authoritative revelation that God has given to you. It is paramount in your Christian walk. It protects you from false teaching as well as enabling you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and encourage you once again to intentionally and regularly interact with the Word of God. Now, one way I mentioned last week was to be on some kind of reading plan, so you're regularly getting into the Word of God and you have some system and organization to it. Uh, Something else you could do is just read one verse. Start Monday morning, read one verse, and then all that week, just read that one verse again and meditate on it. Think about it. What is God saying in this verse? What does it mean? How does it apply to my life? And one other that I will mention that I forgot to mention last week is what you're doing right now. Paying attention, listening attentively to the preaching and teaching of God's Word is one of the ways, one of the primary ways that we pay attention to the Scriptures. And I'm, by faith, I'm believing all of you are attentively listening. The Scriptures are God Himself speaking. So the Spirit of God is saying, listen, listen to what I have said, listen to what I am saying. Then Peter gives a warning in addition to remembering the scriptures. He says, keep this in mind. He says, knowing this, first of all, in other words, this is extremely important. Pay attention to this. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. As you know, the last days is this final era of time of human history that began with uh, Christ's ministry and his ascension and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Peter said in the last days, uh, this is now being fulfilled. So we're in the last days. There's no doubt about that. We're living in the last days. And Peter says, in the last days, scoffers will come with scoffing. And a scoffer is somebody who mocks or disregards something. And in this case, what they're scoffing is the second coming of Christ. Verse 4 says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is this return y'all are talking about, if they're southern scoffers? Where is this return you keep promising me? It's not happening. He hasn't come back. Jesus isn't coming back. It's absolutely ridiculous. And not only do these people reject the idea that Jesus is going to come back, but they mock it in order to cast doubt in other people's hearts that Jesus is coming back. Now, before I look at their argument, I want you to think about this question. What is the source of our belief or our teaching in the second coming? Why is it we, as a church body and believers across the world, would say, yes, Jesus is going to come back? Well, as with the rest of the truths of Scripture, we have apostolic testimony that is preserved in the infallible Word of God. For instance, in Matthew 25, said, uh, Jesus said, When the Son of Man returns in His glory, excuse me, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and He will judge the nations. Now, since Jesus was on earth right then, his, Him saying, by saying, when He comes, He's referring to, okay, I'm going to leave, but then I'm going to come back again. It wouldn't make sense to say when he comes, if he was already here, he's talking about a second time of visitation to the earth. And then in Luke 18, 8, Jesus again said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? After his resurrection, when he physically ascended into the sky in front of his believers, as they're standing on this mountain, just watching him, he's giving them final instructions, and then it says a cloud received him, and he went up into the sky, two angels then appeared and said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come 
Jesus promised that he would return. Angels attested to the fact that he will return. And so the apostles, of course, took that teaching, that truth, and then spread it throughout the church. Jesus will come again. Now, by the time 2 Peter was written, Jesus had been ascended for at least 20 years. And it could have been 40 or 50 years, excuse me. He hasn't come back yet. He isn't going to come back. And then they appeal to history to strengthen their case. So that's when they say, look, ever since the fathers fell asleep, like, for instance, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the fathers of, of uh, the faith, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It goes on as no normal. There isn't any divine in intervention of cataclysmic judgment. This isn't God's way. He's going to let human history just play itself out. Now, when you think about that, it's an absolutely absurd argument because, as I said, they're at least 20 years, maybe 50 years, but anyway, only decades removed from the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, which is the most invasive and intensive divine intervention since creation, God himself in the flesh walking on the earth. How could they possibly think that everything would just continue as it was? But Peter, in his response, he goes back even farther than that to show that these men are foolish and that these scoffers are dead wrong. He points to the great flood that happened during the time of Noah. Look at verses 5 and 6. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, by means of water and by means of the word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So Peter says these scoffers, these mockers, they are deliberately overlooking what happened during the time of Noah. They are ignoring the fact that we already have an example of God intervening in human history and executing judgment on all mankind. This clues us in on the real motive for the scoffers' denial of the return of Christ. They don't want to believe that judgment day is coming. As you know, God destroyed all mankind except for Noah and his family in the great flood. So God has already shown that he is both willing and able to intervene in our world and to execute judgment on humanity as a whole. But these mocking people don't want to consider any truth that will wreck their false perspective. They deliberately pay no attention to the parts of God's word that cause them trouble or convict them. And why is that? Well, verse 3 said that these scoffers are following their own sinful desires. They want to be free to yield to sin. They don't want to think about judgment. Thinking about the judgment of God kind of disrupts your enjoyment of sin because you're thinking about a consequence. You're thinking about a punishment. You're thinking maybe this isn't quite worth it. Now, they don't want to do that. They want to deny any fear of God. They want to deny any fear that their sin will be punished. These people do not trust in Christ to forgive their sin because they still love their sin. They don't want to turn from it. They don't want to be delivered from it. They just want to escape the punishment that it deserves. Have you ever been there? Well, all of us have been there, right? We've all been in that place. where We just don't want the punishment for our sin, but we want to enjoy our sin. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but you actually haven't trusted in Christ to forgive your sins because you don't see your sins as rebellious against God. You don't see your sins as wicked and deserving of his wrath. You don't want to turn from your sins and turn to Christ. You don't want to trust the spirit to move within you to fight your sin. So you tell yourself the judgment, it isn't coming. There's no wrath of God that's going to happen against sin. Everything's just going to rock along just as it has always been. And the Spirit of God is telling you today, if that is your case, the judgment day is going to come. God's wrath will be poured out 
on the unrighteous. And the only way that you can escape is to take up the free offer that Jesus Christ gives you this morning and trust in him. Run to him as the only refuge that we have from the wrath of God. He stands ready to receive everyone who will come to him. And he promises that if anyone comes to him, he will never cast them out. He will never cast them out. Amen. Praise God for that truth. There are a few of us in here that are believers that probably deserve to be cast out a number of times. But Jesus in his love and mercy says, you come to me, I'm going to hold on to you. I'll never cast you out. Ungodly people will deny the return of Jesus, but the scriptures show them to be dead wrong. The second thing that Peter tells us about the second coming is that Jesus will return to bring judgment. So God is patiently delaying that day. Before describing again what the second coming will bring, Peter helps believers understand why is there this long gap between the promise of Christ's return and the fulfillment of Christ's return. Look again at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, the first thing that Peter is doing to help us deal with this long delay is helping us to remember that God looks at time differently than we do. God interacts with time differently than we do. He doesn't see time the way that we see time. One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Basically, what he's saying is, look, God sees all of eternity at all times like it's an instant. Time is just a blip for him. The entire scope of human history is nothing but an instant to God who sees everything from the beginning to the end at all times. Therefore, what looks like a long time to us isn't a long time to God. Yes, it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus said, I will return, and then he ascended to heaven. But Peter is saying, to God, 2,000 years isn't a long time. So don't think that because to us it looks like a very long time that God is being slow in fulfilling his promise or that there's some, something inhibiting God from fulfilling, from fulfilling his promise. 2,000 years is nothing but a blink to God. So do not let that amount of time cause you any doubts about the certainty of Christ's return. And then he tells us why God has delayed the return of Christ. Look at verse 9 again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So notice the characteristic of God that is motivating this delay. It is patience. Peter's saying, look, guys, it's, it's not because of some deficiency in God's character that Christ has not returned again. It's because of the greatness of his character. It's because, because God is mercifully showing patience to us. Peter is saying that God is being patient toward believers by delaying the second coming of Christ. He didn't delay the second coming of Christ for false teachers. He didn't delay the second coming of Christ for these scoffers who were mocking him and mocking his word. He delayed the second coming of Christ out of mercy toward us. So why, why is that merciful? Why is delaying his return merciful toward us? Well, the second half of that verse says, not wishing, God is not wishing, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience in delaying the return of Christ is resulting in the salvation of all those who come to him. There are people who would not have reached repentance if Christ had returned 50 years ago. There are people who would not have reached repentance if Christ had returned yesterday. And however long the Lord waits, there will be people that come into the kingdom of God because of the extra time that he has given. 
Now, what I would really like to do is delve into the doctrine of election here, and I'm not going to, uh, but the reason I would like to, because I think when he's talking about the any, not wishing that any should perish, and the all, the hoping, uh, wanting all to reach repentance, is referring to God's elect, but that is a topic for another day. So whether or not you agree with me on the doctrine of election, I think we can all agree that God is saying that he is being patient and merciful and loving by delaying the return of Christ. And then Peter explicitly states, just in case you missed it, I want you guys to know the day of the Lord will come. And he tells us what's going to happen then. Look again at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord, which in this passage is also called the day of judgment and the day of God, is referring to not a single 24-hour day. You remember Peter had just reminded us, you know, God doesn't quite look at time the way we do. He's got a, got a different perspective on things. And throughout Scripture, sometimes the word day is used of a very long period. My point being this, the day of the Lord refers to the final phase of human history that is inaugurated with the return of Christ and ends when Christ has vanquished all of his enemies and set up his new kingdom on earth to rule and reign forever in perfection. Now, Peter actually focuses more on the judgment aspect of this return of the Lord, of this day of the Lord. In fact, scholar Gene Green, I love this description, he says that the horror of this cosmic conflagration defies comprehension. Peter describes a fiery destruction that is so vast and so intense that the sky and the stars disappear with a roar. How many of you have ever been burning a large fire and you see the flames get to something that burns up quickly and it makes kind of a, a roar it's so fast? Isn't that so satisfying and frightening at the same time? What Peter is talking about is this, this when God comes in judgment and he's going to basically cleanse the entire universe and make it fit to be remade for his eternal kingdom, that his judgment is going to cause the sky and the stars to pass away with a roar, just burn up so quickly that there's this, this roaring sound. All the enemies of Christ, both human and supernatural, will be banished to eternal punishment, and all the people of Christ will be glorified, set free from sin and suffering and death forever. Here's what FBC's statement of doctrine says about the second coming. I, th I think this is beautiful. We believe in the personal bodily return of Jesus Christ in the glory of his Father to set up on earth a kingdom in which he shall reign in righteousness and peace. Amen. That is the day of the Lord. It is inaugurated and finished by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there is judgment that is involved but for those of us who know Christ, it is going to be bring blessing, peace, and the ultimate salvation, which we are all promised. God is patiently delaying the return of Christ out of his love and mercy, but it will surely happen. And because that is true, the return of Jesus should shape the way we live. The return of Jesus should shape the way we live. Now, in every sermon, to be uh, adequate, I'll say, there should be some application of the word of God, I think, that's given to the people of God. I think that is a, a right uh, duty for a preacher. But in this case, I didn't even have to think of an application because the Spirit gave us one right here in verses 11 through 13. But before I look at those verses, I do want, to, uh, want you to think about something. 
An author by the name of T. David Gordon advises preachers to be very careful when they're talking about behavior that is uh, to be expected. For instance, when they're talking in a sermon, here's how you should live. Here's, here's what you should do. Now, he, when he says that, he's not being an antinomian. In other words, he's not saying you shouldn't obey God's commands. Yes, he would agree with that. You should obey God's commands. You should listen when God speaks. You should strive to uh, be godly and to pursue Christ. But his concern is the way that so many sermons ultimately collapse into nothing more than just a moralistic speech. In other words, it's all about here's what you need to do. And the uh, result can be that people come to think of the faith as simply a system of behavior modification. So what is Christianity all about? Well, it's about you know doing your best and trying to be better. And that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is ultimately about, of course, the person work the person and work of Jesus Christ. So before I get into here's how you should live, I want you to think about a couple of things. First of all, our standing before God, our justification, our forgiveness, our adoption into his family is not based on how well we're doing at obeying God. Because if it was, is there anybody brave enough in here to stand up and say, okay, I'd be fine. Yeah, God, go ahead and judge me on how well I'm, I'm doing. Nobody would, because if you did, we would all... Uh, throw things at you. Because we know that even after we have been redeemed, even after we have been born again, even after the Spirit of God has come to dwell in us, we still sin. We still struggle with temptation. We still give in to temptation. We still fall every day. We constantly, every moment, need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in order to stand before God. And that is what our standing is based upon. Our standing is based upon his person and his work. And that is why the book of Hebrews says that we can come with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace. Because we're not coming on our merits. We're coming on his merits, which are full and perfect and complete. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no one will be justified in his sight. So if you are trusting in the way you live in order to be accepted by God, or if you are trusting in the good things you're doing to purchase your standing in the kingdom of God or your place in the family of God, then you're still lost in your sins. Because God is saying that nothing that you do, nothing that you have done is worthy of being accepted by me outside of Christ. Call on him to have mercy on you and he will. He'll forgive you and bring you into his kingdom and you'll stand before God completely on the basis of what Christ has done. Because he is perfect and he is perfectly obedient, we are justified, we are forgiven, we are adopted. And then having been saved by faith, having now been adopted and put into that kingdom of God, having been adopted into the family of God forever, now out of the security of that love, we can pursue the Lord. Now the Lord is leading us to obey and to live in, in ways that uh, shape us to be more like him. It is not in order to attain that. It is not in order to maintain that. It is as a result of what God has done and is doing in your, life, in your life. So as we look at these final three verses and think about how we should live, consider them as a righteous response to God's grace to you. In fact, notice that Peter twice calls believers beloved before he gets to this part. You're already beloved. He's not saying, okay, guys, because judgment is coming, this is how you should live in order to be beloved. He's saying you are beloved you have united yourself to Christ through faith. You are beloved forever. Now, out of that love, this is how you should respond to the knowledge that Jesus Christ is going to come back. And as you strive to obey the exhortation that Peter is about to give, 
rest in the love of Jesus Christ. If the Lord is indeed this morning showing you that you need to make changes in the way you live, receive that not as make changes or I'm not going to accept you. Receive that as make changes in order that I may more fully redeem you from the slavery to sin. Okay, let's look at verses 11 to 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Since we know that money and gold and cars and houses and buildings will all be dissolved, Peter is saying, don't live for those things. Don't pursue those things. Don't make those things the center of your affection and the focus of your life. Pursue holiness. Pursue godliness. Pursue what is eternal, what is not passing away. 1 John 2, 16 and 17 says, For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away with all its desires. But whosoever, whoever does the will of God abides forever. The return of Jesus in judgment should shape our values. The things of the world, even things that aren't sinful, all those things I named, houses, cars, gold, lands, buildings, they're not sinful, but they will all be dissolved. They will all pass away. So enjoy them. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Utilize money and cars and buildings, but keep them in their proper place. Don't make them what you're living for. Don't make them your ambition or your focus. Let your contentment and your joy and satisfaction be found in Christ. Pursue holiness and godliness. One way to do that is to faithfully gather each week, as you're doing right now, and those of you that are online, gathering each week with the body of Christ to sing praises to his name, to give him honor and glory and worship, to hear his word taught, to encourage your fellow believers in their pursuit of Christ, to strengthen them in their faith. If you are find yourself that you are living for possessions, if, if your highest ambition right now is to make a million dollars or achieve a certain position in your company, then check your heart. Check what your focus is. Meditate on the fact that all of this is going to pass away. The highest honor that the world can give is going to be as nothing in the next life. Let's live for what is eternal. Let's live for what is tied to the reality of Jesus Christ. Ask the Spirit to give you the desire and the strength to live for holiness, set apart for the purpose and pleasure of God. Now, I realize, and I won't spend much time unpacking this, I realize that those very terms, holiness and godliness, have often been distorted because it's possible you grew up in a church where uh, holiness consists of a, a very narrow range of specific behaviors. Uh, holiness is that you don't go to this place or that you do go to this place. Or holiness is that you uh, wear a certain kind of clothing and don't wear this type of clothing. You, uh, holiness is that your hair is neither too short nor too long and that kind of thing. Holiness is ultimately about being set apart for the Lord. Pursuing his purposes in your life. Pursuing his will. In verse 12, Peter makes what is to me an absolutely baffling statement as the Spirit continues his application of this truth. So he says, okay, first of all, since this is going to happen, all these things are going to be burned up, so don't live for those things. And then he adds, we should be waiting for and hastening the coming 
of the day of God. Now that first part makes sense to me. Waiting for, looking forward to, expecting. Yeah, I can see that. We should live with the, with the coming, the return of Christ uh, for, at the forefront of our minds. We, we should think about it. We should rejoice in it. We should look forward to it. I can make sense of that. But then he says that we should hasten the coming of the day of God. Now, to hasten something means to hurry it up, to speed it, speed it along. And that's why this is completely baffling to me. How on earth can we hurry up the coming of the day of God? Or can we? What is he saying? Maybe it's hyperbole. What the heck is even going on here? Sorry, I said heck in a sermon. What is going on here? Hopefully those small children uh, are in the room. So is Peter saying that we can actually speed up or shorten this timetable that God has for the return of Jesus? Well, part of me says, I don't really like that thought, so surely he can't be saying that. But this is a case where God's word is, is right there in front of me. So all I can do is say, well, yeah, this is what he's saying, so this, this must be true. Uh, so here, here's a, how I deal with that. Uh, not, not in a way to explain it away, sorry. What I mean is, here, here's how I kind of make sense of it. Jesus said in Matthew 24, the gospel, excuse me, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then... The end will come. So I think part of what he is saying is be involved in helping the gospel of the kingdom to spread around the world. So we can help hasten or speed up the coming of the day of God by our prayer support and financial support and emotional support for missionaries to go to places where Christ is not named to bring them the gospel. By praying for the spread of the gospel to corners of the world where it is now even closed. Places that are dark in spiritual understanding. Praying for this gospel of the kingdom to go throughout the whole world is one of the ways that we can hasten or speed up the coming of the day of God. And one other that I thought of at the book of, as the book of Revelation is wrapping up. The apostle John prays, come Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And I know that uh, probably a lot of you have said that, especially when things are difficult or uh, tumultuous in your life. Uh, over the past year, 2020, there are probably a hundred times that that has uh, been called forth from your lips. Come, Lord Jesus. That is a cry for us to say, Lord, bring an end to this broken and sinful world. Bring an end to sin. Bring me complete and full deliverance. Bring your children uh, respite, respite from their suffering and their sin. So I think that we can hasten the day of God, one, by our support for the gospel going around the world, as well as our very prayers asking the Lord Jesus to come and come quickly. The return of Jesus should shape the way we live, pursuing holiness, righteousness, thinking about looking forward to his return, as well as doing the part that he has given us that will speed that return along. Here's what the Spirit says in this passage. You can be sure that Jesus will return. You can be sure that Jesus will return. He will judge the ungodly and rescue his people. It doesn't matter that it's been almost 2,000 years since the promise was first given. It won't matter if he waits another 2,000 years. The certainty that Jesus is going to return will never change. It is promised by the Almighty God himself. 
If you have trusted in Christ, then know that he will rescue you. If you're alive when the events of the day of the Lord begin, know that you will be rescued from the wrath of God. You will not have the wrath of God poured out out on you. If you die before the day of the Lord is inaugurated, you will be rescued from wrath. If, however, you have not trusted in Christ, if you have never put your faith in the person and work of Christ, in his life and his death on the cross for your sins and his mighty resurrection, then you will not be rescued. Then you will face the wrath that Peter describes in this passage. And so my exhortation, my urging, my plea with you this morning is to come to Jesus Christ. The door of grace is wide open right now. He will receive you. He will wash you and cleanse you and adopt you into his family Put your faith in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You can be sure that Jesus will return. He will judge the ungodly and he will rescue his people. Let's stand as I close in prayer. Great God, one true God who has revealed yourself in your son Jesus, who has through him forgiven our sins and brought us into your kingdom Oh, God, we praise you this morning. We praise you for your mighty, glorious promise that your son will one day return to this earth, that he will set in motion events that will end in his vanquishing all enemies, rescuing his people fully and setting up his forever kingdom on this earth in perfection and peace. Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts this morning love for you, gratitude toward you, and expectation of that time. I pray, Lord, if there are any believers that are beaten down, weighed down, feeling the weight of sin or doubt, that you would move in their hearts to once again remind them of your love, once again remind them that they can rest in you. And Lord, if for those who do not know you that are sitting in this room or watching online, I pray that your spirit would convince them of their dire situation, that they are living under the wrath of God, but that he has offered his son as a rescue. He has offered his son to take their sins upon himself, to wash them, to bring them into into his family. Thank you for your word, O God. I pray for your blessing upon your people. Amen.